Hi, I'm Greg from Omaha. I'm Michael from Baltimore. Hey, I'm Dave from Portland, Oregon. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Carrie Fisher. Uh, she started her life as the child of literally uh, America's sweethearts, the singer Eddie Fisher and the actress Debbie Reynolds. Um, she was a, a successful professional a- actress by the time she left her teenage years, but also, to be perfectly frank, uh, kind of a mess. Um, she has transformed her life as a writer in the past 20 years or so with best-selling novels and memoirs and a, an autobiographical stage show called Wishful Drinking, which was transformed both into a best-selling book and into an HBO special, which is now out on home video. Her new book is called Shockaholic. It's uh gosh it's about uh it, it's about family and and death and and fame and all kinds of intense stuff. Um Carrie, welcome to the Sound of Young America. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to hear about being a mess when I left my teen years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not off base, am I? No, you've never as long as I've known you, you have never been off base. Thank you. Um Okay. You write in this in the new book uh Shockaholic about spending some time with uh, Michael Jackson, right at what turned out to be the very end of his life. And yes. one of the things that you wrote very movingly, I thought about was your perception of him as someone who was defined by the outside world before he was able to define himself. Yes. And like a, a few pages later, there are these photo spreads of covers of tabloid magazines with you and your brother and your mom on them. Right. Uh, when you're like four years old. Oh, less. I was photographed for the first time when I was six months old from a good angle. And so. No, six hours. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it feels like it feels like maybe one of the reasons you were able to relate to that problem that Michael had being a, a performer, you know, starting from six or seven was that you were you had a public persona before you had a, a defined private persona. I don't think there was anything private in in our lives at that point. I mean, we were sort of. Actually, not the willing Kardashians of the 50s, but, you know, there was – it was that kind of um, focus on uh, the family and the drama surrounding it. Your your family's drama was sort of the um, – it was like the test case for what if the real-life family drama of the stars was also the drama of the tabloids? Like that had – there had been tabloid drama before that. Right. But this was the first time that it wasn't just made up by a publicist to get some attention for someone? Well, and it was, I think it was the first time it was just sort of like um, uh, heartbreaks. I mean, the other drama prior to that, when you look at Hollywood scandals, was Lana Turner's daughter allegedly killing her 
Lana Turner's boyfriend. And so that was a trial and whatever. And but that's a murder. And that would be a scandal in any climate. But to have this sort of, you know, their my parents relationship documented to that extent uh, was unusual. And they're and they're actually their uh, courtship. I think they were more in love with people kind of being in love with them. I mean, they, when on, my mother said on their fourth date, they went to Yankee Stadium and 30,000 people stood up and cheered. Now, I'm going to date that person. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not me, but, you know. Did you feel like you had been, when you were a teenager and you were, or, or, or an adolescent, and you were in that part of your life where you're trying to, you know, figure out, who you were did you did you feel like the world had all these expectations of who you were already well yeah not only the world but in a way i mean weirdly uh you know celebrities is is, is america's royalty especially in the way that you know <laughs> royalty sort of like you're not doesn't you're not actually defined by you know, any skills in order to be royalty. And now it appears that in order to be a celebrity, you don't necessarily have to have certain skills. And uh, I don't know. So, yeah, I was – my parents were, I guess, Hollywood royalty. And, and so that means by definition that you're associated with these sort of quote-unquote special people. So you're going to be special. But How? You started performing with your mom when you were uh, a teenager. Was it because you wanted to be a performer or no, just because you wanted I to hang out with your mom? <laughs> no, I didn't want to do it. It was just our way of having a family outing was to go to, ni- to work, nightclub work in Vegas. I mean, that was the only way to stay to get, for us to see our mom was if you want to hang out, we, we got to do it on stage. You... Um, you started acting professionally as uh, just in your older teenage years. I think you were you were seventeen when you made shampoo, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, how did you How did you end up on that path, having seen the um, having seen the you know the price associated with it? I thought I was. It was a goof. I thought I was 17 years old. Um, my, we had a house guest who was uh, George Firth, who was a writer who wrote the book of Company and other things, a f- theater writer. And he was friends with Warren Beatty and he was also – he had a scene in Shampoo as well. And there was a part for a young girl in it. And he brought me on the set one day as kind of a goof, a gag. What, I wasn't an actress. I didn't have an agent. I wasn't trying to be one. And so I just did this one day's work on shampoo, one day. And then I went up uh, on a one job interview, one job interview after that, which was for two movies at the same time. Brian De Palma was casting Carrie and George Lucas was casting Star Wars. And I got one of the jobs. <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard to imagine the idea of, falling into something that became one of the most significant cultural products of the 20th century in the world. Product being the operative word. Yeah, I, it's like I'm Minnie Mouse. Uh, but I, you know, it's Princess Leia's famous. I just really, really look like her. I mean, not so much anymore, but I really, really used to. 
I think that now when uh, studios make a monster blockbuster film, uh, they intend for it to be a monster blockbuster film. Like, I, I don't think that, um, you know, John Torturo uh, didn't know what he was signing up for when he signed up for Transformers 2 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1977, the idea of a monster blockbuster film didn't barely exist. even existed. Yeah. Right. And... Uh, I wonder if you liked that uh, this movie became this, like a thing bigger than any pop culture thing had ever been in the United States, or or at least had ever been in, you know, since Gone with the Wind or something. I wonder if I liked it too. Um, <laughs> at the time, I was 19. I mean, and all that implies, I didn't have a lot of, li- I had weird life experience. I had done nightclub work, but I hadn't been in the world that much, not in any sort of, you know, uh, well, a predictable way. Anyway, it was fun. It was a goof. It was amazing. It was, this, I thought it would be some kind of cool little, like, you know, uh, hip film that showed in the village, but then it. Like as I, like it misbehaved. It did this whole other thing. You were already using by the time you were in Star Wars, right? Mm, pot was really. I mean, I wasn't uh, well in. I my my use was so fast and furious. Um, no, but a pot only, and then it had turned on me by then. I, you know, I, I stopped laughing and getting the munchies and started thinking, oh, my God, what did I just say? How stupid was that? Which I still do to this day, but without pot. Um, and so I had to find another drug after that. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Carrie Fisher. Her new book is called Shockaholic. Uh, I think I used to maybe watch actresses on TV talking about being self-conscious about how they looked. And mm. think like, come on, give me a break. You're gorgeous. That's why you're a famous actress. Right. And uh, and, and then I I had always been someone who was perfectly comfortable with how I looked. And then I, I hosted a TV show. <laughs> and immediately on that tiny scale, like the tiny scale of a, of a, you know, a television show on IFC, I was like, wow, I cannot imagine what it would be like to have to look at myself on a big screen i mean it was horrible crippling no and especially i never i mean this is the good news and the really bad news is i never really thought i was pretty my mother was so beautiful and she was so comfortable about her appearance and she had a great relationship with it and i had i just thought well i don't look like her and i wow i gotta find something else i don't know but i never looking up at the screen I didn't like looking in the mirror. So if you look at yourself that gigantic on the screen and think, oh, I don't have an upper lip. I love, there's a pimple, there's, you know, anything. And I was just, I was never good with that. So I, you know, my thing is I didn't go into show business. It would have been a bigger trick for me to have stayed out. And I did not manage to turn that trick. It's kind of a, I mean, you are, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's news that uh, to you that the general opinion was spectacularly good looking, very good looking today. Um, I didn't understand that. I only now understand that I was sort of a pinup. I swear it's only in the last like ten years. Like oh, <laughs> they did something where they did, you know, all the people that 
sort of iconic uh, images of women in bikini. There was like Raquel Welch on a beach in some jungle bikini, and and there was the the metal bikini. And I just, you know, I can't even. It didn't even come close to thinking of myself that way. By the time the metal bikini rolled around, you were a number of years into the the Star Wars thing. Um, did you feel different about it in the by the time you were making the? Yes. Uh, tell me how. Uh, I was more confident. It was really cool to make the second film and third because you knew you were making hit movies. I mean, there was this huge appetite for them, so there was no way it was just going to be some, oh, that was a disappointment, next, you know. And and the feeling of that, you know, you work on these movies, it's the crew, it's the, and you're working for a limited time, all of you collectively doing this thing that may or may not happen, and we worked with the same crew. It was, it was film camp, and I was the only girl in an all-boy, you know, fantasy and not just a porn one at that. And so it was it was fun and I got more confident and I I I was enjoying myself more. I did manage to actually do that before ending up in rehab. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I see you on screen in uh the last Star Wars movie or in the Blues Brothers which is uh uh one of my favorite films and probably my favorite performance I've ever seen you give. Oh, thank you. Uh, um, <laughs> there's, there's an edge. There's, there feels like there's something really hard underneath. Um, and I wonder if I'm making that up in my brain or if, if that really existed. An edge, like what sort of edge? You seem much, angry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you I se- wasn't. I was having my life had gotten more complex by then. I was. 20. <laughs> no, I was 21. And I had started dating Paul Simon. And then we broke up and I started dating Danny. And so that was the first time in my life that I'd ever been involved in a kind of a soap opera, amazing situation. And take acid <laughs> <laughs> to help me, you know, deal with it. <laughs> Did taking acid help you deal with it? Or no, you know, it? we were the last night I was with a friend and we were sort of saying, can you imagine Kim Kardashian taking acid like right now and, you know, coming across like all the, you know, <laughs> looking in the mirror and going, oh my God, I'm Kim Kardashian. Uh, I did take acid for the first time on the Blues Brothers movie and yeah, it was I was Princess Leia, but it was good that I did that. I just never, uh, I never really, uh, it was a very good thing to have. I mean, I'm not recommending this at all, so I shouldn't talk about this anymore. But um, it was probably good that I did do that. We'll have more with Carrie Fisher after a break. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. 
Here's some big news. Starting in January, The Sound of Young America will become Bullseye with me, Jesse Thorne. A special thank you to all of the hundreds of Sound of Young America listeners who help suggest new name ideas and uh, vet the possibilities and help us think about the various considerations and whatnot in year two four. That's it. The Sound of Young America, now Bullseye. Same great Sound of Young America content, now with a name that you're less embarrassed to say out loud. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Carrie Fisher. Her new book is called Shockaholic. One of the things about um, the uh, the ECT, the uh, electroconvulsive therapy that gives the uh, uh, that lends that lends the name to your book, Shockaholic, mm. is that it removes chunks of your memory and makes other parts of your memory inconsistent? Well, you you have it three times a week for three weeks. And at that point, if someone wrote and said, I had so much fun last night at dinner, you would just think, I have no clue what you're talking about. But that certainly was only that way for that time. So that's, that was not that that's nothing, but it's, you know, it was four months where it just eliminate things would happen. And that was, that was it. They did not go into any kind of file that you could refer back to. But later on, now, I, I have a lot of trouble remembering movies I've seen. In fact, I can see them over and over again, though, which isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and sometimes even with books, the same is true. I'll be reading and thinking, oh, oh, this is familiar. But I can be, you know, entertained. But it doesn't – I don't know what my memory – you know, which part of my memory has been affected by electroconvulsive therapy or LSD ingestion or getting older or blah. One of the things that I've read you describing, one of the feelings that I've read you describing having after having ECT is that it breaks up the concrete that sets in your mind. It, totally. It, it seems like it's almost, in a way, it, it feels almost like, like a reset button. Like you- I, it gives you a place to move on from. And I've never said that before, but that it, that is what it is. Yes, reset would be good. I mean, that that feels related to me to the idea of memory, and you know, memory as it relates to trauma. I mean, one of the things about trauma and the way that it, it affects your brain is that it it's like too much for your brain and. And things get rewired wrong and um, a memory that your brain was trying to let go of comes up in the wrong places. Yes. And I can see in a situation like that where how liberating it would feel to be able to hope go back to zero. You know what I mean? Which is what hope is. And to not feel sort of, yeah, like you've gotten kind of somehow underneath a pile of uh, eventualities and situations that you, you can't move on from. So to, to be able to have a new starting point, yes, to reset, yes, is, is a really – is a luxury. One of the things about writing fiction about your personal experience is that you get to um, 
you know, you get to look at this ex- these experiences that you've had in a completely different way. Detached way. And you can even change it if you want to. Well, if you do it third person, that's what's unpleasant about first person nonfiction memoir, especially with a bad memory. (laughs) Reflections from someone who is pretty much, um, I don't even remember the word for people that can't remember everything. (laughs) It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Carrie Fisher. Her new book is called Shockaholic. One of the best stories in your new book grows out of you doing an Elizabeth Taylor uh, AIDS benefit dinner. And, you know, being is that you have the audience that you get at at an Elizabeth Taylor AIDS benefit dinner. um, Kind of... Gay? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to... It's not my place. I know. That's why I did it for you. Um, but you, you know, you, you have this audience that's, that's ready to go wherever you want to go. Wherever, exactly. You can be as, ca- as catty as you'd like to be and, uh, and hold your tongue firmly in cheek and, and you don't have to worry that they're not going to get it. Right. Um, and you ended up, uh, jokingly talking smack about your former stepmother, although at that point she had not really been part of your life other than indirectly. Right. Um, tell me what, how, what happened? Well, I, I, uh, I said I'd gotten flowers from Elizabeth that morning thanking me for my participation in this evening's event because the AIDS Foundation was her charity, you know, her charity, period. And so I got flowers and I went to my room, opened the card, knowing it was an apology note for her having stolen my father all those years ago. So I went in my room with the note, closed the door, got next to the phone so I could call my shrink to sob and be excited about the note. And I opened it and it said, you know, thank you so much for helping me with this evening's, you know, uh, festivities. And I said, but I could read an apology between the lines if I wanted to. (laughs) So I'm looking at a room full of uh, like a thousand cowboys and cowgirls. Because it was a Western themed event. Yes. And so I was invited the next day to Elizabeth's house uh, uh, for on a Sunday for a pool party. And I brought my daughter and, and, and she appeared at some point and I'm, Billy's in the pool and I'm by. And she said, I hear we have something to talk about. And I thought, whoa, I didn't think I was being summoned to <laughs> process things. Like a royal audience. Yes, so um, and and so I said that I had heard that she called my mother a goody two shoes, and you know uh, I didn't think that that was appropriate uh, either, given the context of you know kind of their relationship, the history of their relationship, and and the fact that my mother now s- uh, swore like a sailor. So um, she kind of looked off and thought, and it looked like she was thinking, "Oh God, I remember saying that," and she said, "I don't remember saying that." <laughs> And then she kind of drifted off to, I think, rest from having had that. It was very minimal, the con- but for, I guess, in her. Anyway, she came back and said, I'm going to push you in the pool. <laughs> Which, why wouldn't she, right? And I said, go ahead. She said, no, no, you'll pull me in after you. And I said, no, no, I swear to God, I won't. Push, push me in. And I took off my expensive watch and the rest as photographed in the book. <laughs> Roddy McDowell took those photographs. Uh, a lot of this new book, Shockaholic, is about um, your relationship with your dad, which was um, it, which was really 
at its deepest when you were um, when you were doing the stage show of wishful drinking in 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 Berkeley. Yes. Um, and he was he was living in Berkeley. Yes. Um, and I wonder if you could describe um, what it was like. Your father, of course, was a, a you know a legendary pop singer and um, a legendary ladies man. And I and not not a huge part of your life growing up, um, but I wonder if you could describe what it was like to be a- around him. Again, um, now my my father had a kind heart, and he was really he was a child, in a similar way to I don't know sort of how Michael was a child, but Michael was responsible. He could get the job done. He could keep, somehow keep a career going with all of the antics that, you know, threatened from the outskirts. But my dad, being around my father, he and he, my father just, he was grateful. To, he loved me, and he really did. He was not a good father, but we didn't have to be family in a conventional way was what I finally realized. I eventually ended up being kind of like a mother to him. He called me mommy sometimes. I took care of him, and he really, really appreciated it. What do you think that you got out of um, uh, out of making peace with having a relationship like that, that, that you were giving something that he could— Other than everything? <laughs> yeah. Well— Yeah. You just because it's so much better to— be able to look at someone and say, you know, well, please, because then it gets back to you. He, you know, he's a he's a, a good person that did some bad things, you know, and he didn't do them with a mean spirit. He just, you know, he was a child and he did not want to grow up and, and he wanted to do what he wanted, what made him feel good rather than it didn't, you know, Matt, it was too, too bad that it disappointed and but people around him, but he had to pursue what he had to pursue. And, uh, you know, the, if you can forgive that in him, I can forgive it in myself. Maybe someday. Um, a, a close relative of mine was um, recently diagnosed as, as bipolar, somebody I, I is, who's very important to me. And... Um, it's something that you've dealt with since you were diagnosed in your mid twenties. And I wonder how you see that it's affected your life and what, what you've seen that has helped you best helped you live a good life despite slash because of it. Um, well, I just I really have to be mindful of things and it turns out that's actually a good book. <laughs> but but it it is a state of mind of being mindful of being uh uh aware of where you are when you are. Um being manic depressive um has you know, it's affected a lot of things, but you don't what you don't want to do is make it sort of like the excuse of well, you know, I can't help you know, I'm self-medicating. I'm not a drug addict, you know. 
it can't be your your kind of alibi for everything. But uh, I, what it has done for me that's been fantastic is it has made me pursue so many different ways of uh, taking care of my, you know, of going all going through all these ridiculous things of just est and rebirthing and all these like, you know, going into the taking the peyote in the desert with the guy and the two weeks in the, you know, verbal and, and food fast in the desert. And, you know, I just did all of these things, shrinks and, and, and 12, everything in order to some way there, I knew there wasn't one answer. So, so to look for so many different, you know, ways to arm myself against, you know, an inevitable incoming mood influx. So that 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 inadvertently then helped a lot of other areas. Well, Carrie, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. Well, thank you. I really have enjoyed this. Well, thank you so much. And I, I, have, to, I have to tell you, I, I really enjoyed the book. Your, your work is very pleasant company. Well, thank you. And so are you. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor is Nick White. Our intern is Colin Walzak. That's Colin with two L's for those of you keeping score at home. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always send me an email. My email address is jesse at MaximumFun.org. And always remember... All good radio hosts have a signature sign-off.